you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Peter chapter 1. So in high school, um, I, took, I took three years of French. I don't know why. I, don't, <laughs> I guess it just seemed like it was like romantic and exotic. Ah, I, it was different. In retrospect, Spanish might have been more useful living in California. I don't know. Uh, and I don't remember any of it, except I, I remember the phrase, uh, je t'aime mon petit chou. Uh, yeah, which means I love you, my little cabbage. So <laughs> that's, that's all of the French that I remember. One of the cool things about uh, taking French was that I got to be a part of this French club trip to France when I was uh, an uh, upperclassman and uh, got to actually go and uh, explore what that was like. And, uh, and when, when I went, I was, I was a little bit older and, and, you know, a lot of it's programmed out and they take you to different sites and you see different things. But there was a lot of f- free time. Like I had this opportunity to go and just like wander around and explore. And so me and some of my classmates would go uh, and just see if we could figure out how to communicate in French with French people, uh, and so we went like shopping and went to restaurants and did other things, and, and it was great. I learned a ton that way. I probably learned more uh, during that time than I did like in class, because that whole immersion thing really is uh, helpful. But one of the things that I discovered quickly is that there's a difference between France and, and America. Uh, there are some differences uh, and the, everyone that we interacted with quickly discovered that, that we weren't from there, that we were foreigners. Uh, my, my language, my clothing, uh, my food choices, really everything about me just screamed like brutish American teenager. Uh, it was fun to visit and, and to see the culture firsthand, but before long, I started to get a little bit homesick. Uh, traveling is tiring. It's exhausting. You got to get up early and you're always like driving on a bus to go see like some castle or some museum and you're walking for miles. You're standing in line. And then s- speaking in a different language is mentally exhausting. I don't know if you've ever been in that where you're trying to translate with your brain. Uh, and it, and it's, it's hard to do. I'm used to just speaking without even thinking, right? Like most of us. <laughs> But to have to actually think about what you're saying is a lot tiring, a lot harder to, to do. Uh, I miss, I miss just like all the comforts of home and uh, I miss my girlfriend Camille. I missed, I missed everything and uh, I missed just hearing people talk. I missed fitting in. I didn't, I didn't fit in there. Uh, and I think even if I were to have spent like the next 30 years there and learned how to speak French fluently and learned all of their cultures and, and tradition, I still wouldn't be a Frenchman. I still wouldn't be from there. I'm still just going to be a, an American. Uh, I would always be a foreigner. I would always be a, a resident alien, an outsider. And I would probably always feel at least a little bit out of place there. And would always long for home. Here in, in 1 Peter, Peter is reminding these believers that they are foreigners. They're outsiders and wanderers and sojourners in this world. They're not from here. They are citizens of heaven. 
They have a new residence. They have a heavenly home. And they will always feel a little bit out of place and they will always long for that home. Look at verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter. He says, A Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. This is written by Peter. Somebody who knew something about being a wanderer. In the Gospel of Luke, we read uh, that there's this account of Jesus who is teaching this group of people on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he wants them to be able to hear him better. So he climbs into a boat that's nearby and asks the owner of that boat if he could row it out a little ways. And just offshore, uh, the sound carries better, and Jesus is able to to speak to a larger audience, and they can hear him better. And, And so Jesus preaches to them. And after he's done preaching, he turns to the owner of the boat, a guy named Simon, and says, hey, would you row this thing out further? Cast your nets out, out there. Simon says, ah, we've been fishing all night long, and we didn't catch anything. Like, I was washing my nets. I'm kind of tired. But but I'll I'll do what you asked me to do. Because it's you, I'll do it. And so he rows out further and tosses the nets out. And they catch so many fish that, that the nets start to break that he has to call to shore to have other boats come out and help them haul all the fish in. And when, when Simon sees what happened, he falls to Jesus' feet and he says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And here, Simon knew that he was in the presence of someone who was holy and powerful and from God. And it humbled him and it frightened him. He didn't feel worthy to be in Jesus' presence. But Jesus says this to me. He says, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. Says so they pulled their boats up on shore and left everything and followed him. Simon put his career on hold, his whole life on hold, because he heard Jesus preach and he had seen Jesus' power and he knew that Jesus was from God. And he was willing to wander around the countryside if it meant following him because he knew that that would be worth it. This guy Simon becomes the spokesman for the apostles. I think because he was just naturally an outspoken kind of guy. But there was just this close relationship that he had with Jesus. So he held a a place of prominence within the group. But really, Simon is still at his core just this salty, gruff fisherman. 
And he, and he often just spoke right from the heart. Sometimes maybe spoke without thinking fully. And sometimes that was a good thing and sometimes it was not a good thing. When Jesus asked the question, uh, who do you guys say that I am? It was Simon that responded and said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, good work. The Father has revealed this to you. And then He says, uh, you are Petra, right? Peter, the rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And from then on, he's got this new super cool nickname, Peter, the rock. Just a few verses after that, though, as Jesus is trying to explain to, to his disciples that they got to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be arrested and he's ultimately going to be put to death. Peter's the one that pipes up and says, no, 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 no I'm not going to let that happen. That'll never happen to you, I promise. And Jesus has to say to him, get behind me, Satan. That's a worse nickname than Rock. <laughs> You're like a stumbling block to me right now. And Peter was the one who was quick to say, listen, Jesus, I will never abandon you. I will never forsake you. I will never deny you. But then after Jesus is arrested and people say, hey, Peter, weren't you that guy that was wandering around with Jesus? No, no. Three times he denies Jesus. And, and I think that denial of Jesus left Peter broken and humiliated. I think he must have felt just like a total failure. Out of all of the different uh, accounts of, of Peter and his life in, in the Bible, I think uh, the one that we see at the end of the Gospel of John is my favorite. In John 21, at this point, Jesus has already risen from the dead. He's already appeared to His disciples a few different times. But at this point, the disciples aren't sure what they're supposed to do next or where they're supposed to go. and So they just kind of default back to what they'd always known, uh, fishing. One of them says, you know, I'm, I'm just going to go fishing. And the rest of them are like, yeah, that seems like a good idea. We'll go, we'll go with you. And so all night long, they spend fishing on the Sea of Galilee and catch nothing. Early the next morning, they, there's a, a dude walking on the shore and he shouts out that, that familiar phrase that you always shout out when you see people fishing. Did you catch anything? And they have to say, no, not really. The guy says, try the other side of the boat. I think you'll find some fish on the other side of the boat. Well, how's that going to help? It's the same. Okay, fine. <laughs> so they do. They toss their nets to the other side of the boat. And again, they, they pull up so many fish that their, their nets start to rip. And they have to like slowly inch their way back to shore to be able to get them all on. And, and it was John who realized first who the dude on shore was and yells out, it's the Lord. And, and Peter does the like Forrest Gump where he just runs right off the boat into the water. <laughs> and swims for shore. And on, on shore, Jesus has already made a fire and they have breakfast together. After the meal, Jesus turns to Peter and asks him this question. Looks right at him and asks him this question. Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, you know 
that I love you. Then, then feed my lambs. A few minutes later, Jesus again looks right at Peter and asks the same question, do you love me? And again, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep. And then a third time, Jesus looks right at him and asks, Peter, do you love me? And at this point, I think Peter is hurt, confused. Why does Jesus keep asking me this question? And his answer is the same. Lord, you know all things. You're omniscient. You're God. You know everything. You know the answer. You know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then uh, Jesus says these same two words to Peter that he spoke three years ago when he first asked him to be a part of the gang. He says, Peter, follow me. I think this is Jesus' way of, of reinstating and reaffirming, recommissioning Peter. Like Jesus was telling, listen, I know that you denied me three times, but now you've affirmed your love for me three times. And we're not done. I made you a promise that you were going to be a, a fisher of men. And I'm going to keep that promise. Keep following me, Peter. And Peter did. On that day of Pentecost filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter preaches this gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus and 3,000 people are saved in that one day. Peter is chosen to be the first one to go and break down those, those walls between Jew and Gentile, sent by God to go and preach salvation to Cornelius. And Peter is, is the one who who's arrested and who's beaten and who's threatened, eventually will be martyred. And it's likely that this letter here, 1 Peter, was written towards the end of his life. Probably about 30 years after this, this campfire breakfast with Jesus. And church tradition says that Peter was martyred in Rome by Nero. Again, a few years before that, while living in Rome, Peter writes this letter because he gets word that there are people, believers, all throughout Asia Minor uh, that are, are being oppressed, that, that their Christianity is making them unpopular, and they're feeling the, the pressure of their faith. And so he writes this letter to this, this large audience. He describes the audience as those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. So this is a very general letter written to a whole lot of believers spread all throughout this area. It's interesting the, the words that he uses to describe these people. In the New American Standard, they're described as aliens who've been scattered. The ESV calls them elect exiles of the dispersion. New King James calls them uh, pilgrims of the dispersion. 
NIV says, strangers in the world, scattered. I think that's a pretty good translation. And Peter's writing here uh, to a Gentile audience, uh, but there is all of these very Jewish themes that run all throughout the book. And right at the beginning here, he uses kind of a Jewishy word, diaspora, which means dispersion. And it's a, it's a word that's closely connected with this time in uh, Israel's history when they were taken into captivity, exiled out of their land, scattered throughout all these other countries. Now this, this audience that Peter's writing to, they aren't Jewish and they haven't been exiled physically. They haven't been taken into captivity. They haven't been taken out of their homeland. So why does Peter use these words to describe who they are and what they're like? I think because these Gentile believers had been exiled. They felt like they'd been exiled. They'd been taken out of the old world, their old way of life, transferred into this new kingdom of God. They'd been called out of this world and were now a part of a heavenly world. They're still technically citizens of the Roman Empire, but now spiritually citizens of heaven. And they're people who have to learn how to live now as resident aliens on this earth. Wanderers and sojourners and unpopular and marginalized and insulted and oppressed and uncomfortable. I think that's part of uh, his purpose for writing this is to help them and to help us understand how do we navigate as believers, as citizens of heaven in this world that is not our home. I think there's a couple reasons that Peter writes this. I think first of all, it's to remind them that they're outsiders. Don't, don't think that you're not. Don't get too comfy. This world isn't your home and we will always feel at least a little bit out of place. We should feel out of place. It would be strange if we didn't feel uncomfortable in this world. It would be, it would be bad if we didn't long for our true home. And I think for, for some people back then, and, and maybe even for some people today, we can have this, this uh, wrong idea that faith in God is going to bring comfort and all of these earthly blessings and popularity and happiness and everything's just going to be uh, perfect and everybody's going to love us and nothing bad will ever happen to us. And then, and then we act all like surprised and a little bit grumpy when life doesn't work out that way. These people here that Peter's writing to were in the in crowd. Roman citizens and popular and wealthy and powerful and well-respected. But since placing their faith in Jesus Christ, they'd faced insults from their, their people, from their family. They'd become outsiders in their own country, looked down on and demeaned. That Christianity had made them unpopular and they felt weird and out of place. 
So Peter writes this to say it's, it's okay. That feeling's normal. I don't know about you, but more and more I feel uncomfortable and out of place in my own homeland. The way that Peter addresses this reality of, of suffering and abuse that we face as Christians is, is interesting. How does he... How does he help people? How does he encourage them? What what does he offer to them to help strengthen and support them? Really, he uses solid theology and the gospel. Those are the things that he offers to them as this word of encouragement and hope. He just reminds them of who they are and who they belong to and where they're headed. This is, this is probably one of the most like theologically deep and gospel-rich books of the whole Bible. As well as being spiritually encouraging and, and hugely practical, especially for us as believers who wander in this world. We'll, we'll see this more and more as we progress through the book. But even just here in the first two chapters, there is so much, there is so much theological content wrapped up in here. Look look at it again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God has chosen you. Peter reminds them, God has chosen you. You are loved. You are special. You are God's own. Why? Why does Peter mention this to them again? I think maybe because they didn't feel chosen. They felt abandoned. They felt ignored by God. They needed to be reminded of God's sovereign election. God has chosen you. He's not absent. Okay, the next, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Wow. Did you, did you see like the, the little mini lesson on the Trinity that Peter teaches right there? Also, a little lesson on our salvation and how that works. It's God the Father. He's the one who ordains and who foreknows and who plans our salvation. And then there's this sanctifying and purifying and cleansing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that saves us. And we're, and we're saved through obedience to Christ and the applying of His shed blood to our lives. That is absolutely amazing. Peter's opening words are just so filled with truth and hope. And and again, he's writing to remind these readers of these deep theological truths that are found through our knowledge and relationship with God. As a side note, if anybody ever says to you, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, you take them to 1 Peter chapter 1 and, and you read it to them and you explain to them 
of the saving and sanctifying work of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and God the Son who are clearly evident there. So, so Peter writes this book to remind us that we're outsiders and sojourners. He writes to remind them of the gospel and the sweetness of our salvation. And then Peter also writes this to give them some advice about how we are to live here in this world as outsiders, but in a way that is faithful and God-honoring. And, and all of these things connect, right? They're, they're all interconnected. He's going to teach us how we are to interact with our spouse and with our government and with our own culture. Based on this foundation of who we are as citizens of heaven living in a fallen world. And all, all throughout it, it's just soaked in this rich gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. I think on like on an intellectual level, I think we all know these things. We all feel these things. We know that this world is not our home. Like we know that. And we know that we are saved and we are sealed and we are loved by God. But at the same time, it is hard sometimes to live in this world and and not be cool. We want to be cool. It's confusing to know how we're supposed to live in this world when Christianity is increasingly unpopular. And it's hard to hold on to this faith that is constantly mocked. Not allowed to make fun of any other religion, but this one, have at it. And it's scary to watch as some of these freedoms and religious liberties that we've we've relied on are, are eroding. That's not really anything new for the people of God. We've always been outcasts and wanderers in the world. Ever since God booted Adam and Eve out of heaven, out of the garden. Ever since God called Abraham. All right, Abraham, I want you to follow me. You're going to be a great nation. First thing you do, pick up and move. Ever since the people of God wandered out of Egypt around in the desert, since the exile where they were taken into captivity, constantly displaced and unsettled and Christians scattered out of Jerusalem and all over the place because of persecution. And even here, even here, these Gentile Roman citizens that Peter writes to, even they don't feel at home in their homeland. And that, that feeling of being displaced will, will crush us, discourage us, if all of our hope and our joy is found in this world. But, but being a sojourner doesn't have to be discouraging if we remember who we are, who we belong to, and where we're headed. Peter reminds us of those things all throughout this letter. Hopefully those things can be an encouragement to us as we try and figure out how to be wanderers in our world.
God, I, I pray that that's the case, that you'd give us wisdom, give us guidance to know, Lord, how to navigate life in this world that seems to be so hostile towards you. Help us to continue to be salt, preserving, sustaining. Help us to be light, shining on things that are true and that are right, even though there's so much darkness all around us. Help us to not grow weary in doing good. Help us to not put all of our hope, all of our dreams, all of our love in this earthly world, but give us wisdom to know how to navigate as resident aliens, knowing that You love us and that You're our God and that You've chosen us and that there is something better to come. Thank You, God, again, for Your love and for Your grace and for Your mercy to us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.